1: Today's episode is the second part of an introductory message on the book of Ezra Considering God's use of Cyrus, a Persian king, as an instrument in God's hand Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 reads as follows Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Those words that begin Ezra are also the closing words of Second Chronicles chapter 36. Uh, and if you have some time, I'd encourage you to read that chapter. It outlines the justice of God in bringing the people into captivity due to their sin. But our attention in this message will fall particularly in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. There, God made the announcement that he would use Cyrus as an instrument to bring the people back to their land. Isaiah 44, verse 21 says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant, I have formed thee. Thou art my servant of Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Verse 22 refers to God blotting out their transgressions because he has redeemed them. Then, verse 26 says this that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers, The saith to Jerusalem thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shalt be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof, The saith the deep be dry, and I will dry up the rivers, that saith of Cyrus he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem thou shalt be built, and the temple thy foundation shall be laid. These are the words that we'll consider now, and may God help us, and, and I trust that the preachers battling with a bite of laryngitis is not too much a distraction to the word of God in your hearing today. So
2: the return of the captives from Babylon is indeed a revelation of the character of God. We, we should see God's hand working in this world in that way. The context here, you know, the people of God have sinned, we'll, we'll come to that shortly. They've deserved this time of captivity, and God's hand is now at work to bring the people back from their captivity. The end of 2 Chronicles 36, uh, those last verses are repeated in Ezra chapter 1, and it has this announcement of the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And Cyrus' actions are that the word of the Lord might be accomplished, the word spoken to Jeremiah. And so, Cyrus himself in his action is bringing about the very counsel of God. And so we can see very clearly, the character of God is revealed in these actions. It's revealed in such a way that we can learn much regarding our God. We're going to see, we're going to look mostly closely at Isaiah 44 this afternoon, and we'll see there that the pattern of God's working in establishing His purposes really can provide arguments for praying For the promises of God to come to pass. When you understand how does God work, you have his character. Who is God? You have his workings. What does he do? And you see those things come together. It then furnishes us with arguments to present before God. Holy arguments. Coming to God and saying, this is who you are. This is what you do. Therefore, be who you are and do what you do in our day. That's not bold and presumptuous. That is simply applying the character of God in the place of prayer. And that is how we should pray. Not just here, but in our homes. We take to God and we say to God, this is who you revealed yourself to be in the Word. Therefore, do according to your own revealed character. And so we noticed, again back last week, we noticed in the first message that and these events are occurring as God is sovereign over human history. It is in God's hands that He raise up this man, Cyrus. Isaiah chapter 44 mentions him by name. Verse 28, that Seth of Cyrus. I was saying to one of the boys uh, yesterday, that's akin to George Washington naming Nixon as president that's the similarity here 200 years earlier isaiah by god is able to announce the name of the king of persia 200 years in advance it's clearly the case that god's hand is upon human history he's sovereign over all of these things and so we see in the context of this that god is dealing with his people but before we get to Isaiah 44, let's just take a few moments in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Because again, you've got to know where we're dealing with, what we're dealing with here in these, in these verses. And 2 Chronicles 36, that sets the immediate context, is dealing with the issue of the exile. The, that's the whole chapter deals with the exile into, into Babylon. Verse number 17, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. It's a description of the captivity. It's been warned by Isaiah and Jeremiah, and now it's come to pass in the fullness of time, the exile has occurred. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, have come upon Judah and Jerusalem. Now that exile was deserved. It's the first thing you see in this chapter. It was a deserved exile. Just look at the verses together. Verse number 5. And I'm going to highlight the sections here. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Verse number 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and his abominations, which he did. Verse number 9. Jehoiachin was 8 years old, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse number 12. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Verse number 13. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Verse number 14. He polluted the house of the Lord which it hallowed in Jerusalem. Again, I'm not dealing with the detail of all those things. I'm just asking you to note the emphasis. When you get to verse number 17. You're kind of going, well, of course. There was no other possible outcome. The people of God had turned their back against the Lord, king after king, that this captivity is utterly deserved. The exile is deserved. But however, though it is deserved, it comes despite God's acts of compassion. Look at verse number 14, or sorry, verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. And so, though this captivity and this exile is deserved, it comes despite of God's compassions and God's loving kindness. You know, we've often make the point and the application comes, we fear for those who've been raised in the house of God under the word of God. They fear the overtures of God's grace. and God's wrath will come upon them until there be no remedy for those who spurn the opportunity of gospel grace. This exile, deserved, despite God's acts of compassion, also comes with a wonderful promise This exile is of a definite time in the mercy of God. Verse 20, And them that had escaped from the sword carried away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. This is predicted and prophesied before the Persians come to the ascendancy, before Cyrus and those who follow him are going to rule the known world. There's a time when the Babylonians are going to rule, but their rule will end. Why? Why? Because God says so. Oh yeah, the sociologists can look at this and that and they'll see this factor and that factor and they overstretch themselves and all the various things. But ultimately, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. That's a fascinating way to describe the captivity. A time of rest for the land. The people are taken out and the, the land has a rest. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years, seventy years of captivity at the hand of the Babylonians until the reign of the Persians and Cyrus's coming decree. So you see, when you get to chapter one of Ezra, the setting here is of a rebellious people under the wrath of God, who have received the promise of God. God has given promises. Promises that can be the foundation of prayers. Prayers like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Those who believe the word of God can pray over those things and call upon the Lord. And those promises that come out of the character of God. You've got to join these things together. God gives his promises because of who he is. And God's promises reflect his character toward his people. And so, when you keep all those things in mind, the people have sinned, they spurned the compassion of God, they've rebelled against God, they're now in exile, but God's in control of all of those things. And then you turn your attention to Isaiah chapter 44, you're, then, you're seeing the character of God. You're, you're seeing the attributes of God that, that brings about the assurance of Cyrus's coming. So, Ezra 1, Cyrus comes. Isaiah 44, 200 years earlier or thereabouts, Cyrus shall come. Why? Because of who I am, saith the Lord. Because of my character, my character will guarantee the coming of Cyrus and my good purposes. And so it says there in verse 28 that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. And so we saw last time that Cyrus is indeed an instrument in God's hand. He's a messenger of God in some ways to do the will of God, to establish the pleasure and purpose of God. And when you examine God's dealing with Cyrus, you see these undergirding doctrines that help us again to to get before God in prayer and to pray good, godly prayers in the house of God today. We noticed last time, God's sovereignty in accomplishing His will. The language of verse number forty, verse number twenty-eight, please, of chapter forty-four. He shall perform all my pleasure. God can do what seems to be impossible. He can overthrow a Babylonian kingdom and rise a Persian king to then bring about a decree to bring people back to the land. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Take that to God in prayer. We find ourselves praying for things that seem impossible, but God is able to accomplish His will and His sovereignty. God is faithful in keeping His covenant. Again, we saw that over in chapter 44. God has sworn that He'd bring the people back into the land as He swore in the days of Noah. So He's swearing in those days to to bless them and to keep them, to provide for them. We're arguing upon the covenant of God. But today I want to really focus upon this fact, and that is God's jealousy in defending His name. God's honor is at stake here. Now the connection between God's name and his actions here is fine when you compare chapter 44 verse 22 and chapter 43. Chapter 44 verse 22 refers to God blotting out the transgressions of the people. You see that? I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, as a cloud thy sins return unto me. The return unto me requires the Provision of a man called Cyrus to bring the people back. And so verse 22 is connected with the prophecy of Cyrus. But look back in chapter 43. Similar language here regarding blotting out transgressions. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. And here's the the terminology. For mine own sake. It is for the sake of God's name that he raises up Cyrus. I'm making several steps there, but ultimately what's at stake here is the honor of God's name. God's glory, God's name, God's fame is at stake in the public perception of Israel. Dear child of God, that is the strongest ground you have to pray for the church today. There are multiple things to pray for. But beyond all of those things, for the glory of your name, bless the church. For the public fame of God, bless the church. My God in his sovereignty honors and glorifies his name when the church is persecuted and placed underground. That is God's good and perfect will. But it is also for God's glory for the church to be exalted, to advance and to grow That the heathen would say, where is your God? And we'd say, here is our God. He is working in power in our midst. So yes, I understand God is glorifying his name in various ways at different times. But we are absolutely entitled to pray for God to glorify his name in his work in the church. That's the foundation of all good biblical prayers. So look at the connection here. Well, how how is God's name? At stake in this section. How is God's name involved in this whole circumstance? Well, because of his work in and for Israel. Note, first of all, he chose Israel. Chapter 44, verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Chapter 45, verse 4. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. God himself connects Cyrus' coming with his election and his choice of Israel. This choice is God's act. He chose a people, a nation, out of all the nations of the earth. He chose Israel to be his people. They were known as his people. Not the Persians, not the Babylonians, not the Philistines, the Moabites, But Israel was the people chosen of God, and they were known as such. That choice was not without purpose or intent. God had a purpose, a covenantal purpose of grace to establish in that choice. He chose Israel, and the people were known as the chosen of God. He also made Israel, the language of forming or making Israel. Chapter 44, verse 21. I have formed thee. Again, in in the whole context here, I have formed thee. 44, verse number 2. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb. 43, verse 15. You'll see, again, the language once more, back a page in my Bible. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. This nation, Israel, was the product of God's hands. Formed as a child is formed in the mother's womb. And again, that was known. That this nation, under the name of Israel or Judah now in the southern kingdom, they were the product of God's workings. God attached His name. You know, God will not destroy the his hands. He that begins that good work shall indeed perform it. Philippians chapter one. So he chose Israel, he made Israel, and he redeemed Israel. This is the the challenging part. Look at verse forty-four. Sorry, chapter forty-four, verse twenty-two. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. You see similar language in verse number twenty-four. Thus saith the Lord, thy redeemer the previous verse for the lord hath redeemed jacob now, what you see here really is the fact that god brought israel out of egypt we're going back to the time of the exodus that in the provision of the passover lamb god redeemed and bought egypt or bought israel out of egyptian slavery and he made them his own he redeemed them now, here there is definitely some confusion. The language of verse number 22 and the language of redemption should not be understood the same way we think about individual salvation and redemption. It's not so much saved in the way we might think. It's a reference to the nation, not to the individuals. And so some people, they, they look at this section and say, well, does that mean that all in Israel were truly converted in the children of God at this time? Absolutely not. You read Ezra and Nehemiah and you'll see such the confusion there. This is not about national salvation. This is not about every individual being saved. This is God choosing to forgive the nation's sins and to bring them back into the promised land in his will in redemption. It's about the nation being drawn out of Egypt and now being drawn out of Babylon and forgiving their sins. I'm not saying it's not relevant. In fact, as such, this act of deliverance is typical of the new covenant. When they shall all know me and every member of the new covenant shall have their sins and their iniquities forgiven. So what we see here in old covenant language is going to be fulfilled in the fullness of the new covenant whereby everyone in the new covenant will indeed know the blessings of their sins being blotted out. But the language right now is of God choosing to forgive the sins of the nation and bring them back into the promised land. God's act of redemption is attached and has attached his name to Israel. He bought them, he brought them, and they belonged to him. And these are the things that make God acting for his name. He chose them, he made them, he redeemed them. You might say the question is this, how do we then make application to the church today? I say very carefully, very, very carefully. The physical nation here is the Old Testament covenantal community. You've got to always have that in mind. Israel in Isaiah 44 is the Old Covenant community. It is a national community of whom some are truly converted and others are not. It is not that unified spiritual community, it is rather a mixed community under the covenant. But within that old covenant community is a spiritual seed, a spiritual nation. That's Romans 9 through 11. We've seen this in recent studies. It is within that physical nation, there is a spiritual seed. And to that spiritual seed, that spiritual nation are Gentiles engrafted? Not to the physical nation, but to the spiritual nation. To the covenant community of grace within that old covenant nation. Within that old covenant nation, there is a subset of spiritual Israel who know the Lord. And as to that subset, the church is added. And so God's covenant of promises ultimately come to fulfillment as Messiah comes and as Gentiles are added to the covenant community of God in that spiritual seed. You understand those things, but you must make those steps to make the proper application. Why does God raise up Cyrus? Well, yes, in one sense, to bring the people back to the land. But that's not only... He does so also that Messiah would come, Isaiah 5253. And he does so that Gentiles are added, Isaiah 54. Look at there. Isaiah 54 verse3, "Thou shalt break forth on the right hand and the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. There's the expectation that Cyrus is coming is a step in the process of bringing Gentiles into fellowship with Jewish believers. What is the ultimate purpose of the covenant? Jews and Gentiles united together in Christ Jesus, and Cyrus' coming is part of that purpose. And so when you see the character of God in working in Cyrus, it is that same character that will complete his covenantal purposes. There's a covenant of grace. Christ has given a people he will save all of that people. Cyrus is one piece in that jigsaw, puzzle, if you like, of the revealing of the will of God. But God's character undergirds it all. God's character in the days of Cyrus is the same character today that will see sinners converted across the globe. And so how do you know what to pray for? You pray for a God who's sovereign in accomplishing his will. A God who is able to accomplish His will. A God to whom nothing is impossible. No nation, Iran, North Korea, China, no nation can hinder the purpose of God. And the rulers of those nations, they're instruments in the hand of God even to do His good and perfect will. And so we're, we're praying for the commission, the gospel into all the world. But what about this nation, that nation, the other nation? Leave those things to God. You pray to a sovereign God who is not hindered or frustrated in accomplishing his will. The Babylonians were used of God, but they did not stop God doing the next thing also. We pray to a God who is faithful. He has said he will build his church and he will do so. We pray to God who's jealous for the honor of his name. The church, the name of God is attached to the New Testament church and God is jealous for his name. The ungodly hate the church of Christ, but God loves the church of Christ. And his name matters more than the hatred of the ungodly. Their anger against the church cannot stop God from honoring his name. He's sovereign and faithful. And jealous for his own glory. The Lord shall work in his church. The Lord shall keep his church for the sake of his name. May God indeed be glorified in our midst today.